Because he does love us. He does indeed. Hey, uh, this morning, I want to ask you to, to get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible physical with you, get your phone out. Type in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Um, while you're pulling that up, uh, many of you know, if you don't, we've got a digital bulletin in the Bible app. Uh, you can search for the Bible app on your device and uh, find us there. Um, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. I want to just read it. And uh, I, I want to encourage you, be open on this one, all right? But let's, let's dig in. We're going to kind of go through this because there's some, there's some deeper stuff in here, all right? So Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself through your word this morning, that we would hear from God about you, and that as we hear from God about you, it would inspire us to reflect on ourselves and to not only reflect and wait on you, but to be ready to do whatever it is that you're calling us to specifically this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, in the middle of summer, uh, our family, and our family being uh, Caitlin and I, her parents, her sister, uh, we rented a pontoon out on Taylorsville Lake. <clears throat> Sherry's laughing already. This is, this is bad. Actually, it's good. I don't know if it's good or bad. So we rent a pontoon on a Friday. We show up to the marina at about 11. We have all of our stuff for the day. We get it out on the pontoon, and it's starting to look a little gray. Was it supposed to rain in Shelbyville? Taylorsville and Shelbyville aren't that far apart, are they? So we just continue on, and we get our things on the pontoon, and we take off for the back of the lake. We're just going to get off, we're going to swim, we're going to have fun, enjoy time together, you know, wrestle kids on a boat instead of in our house, just to change the scenery. And we get to the back of the lake, and um, we, we're starting to have some fun. We find a way to tie off, and you know, we're getting in the water. We're learning that the kids are scared to go down the slide on the back of the pontoon, all the things. And all of a sudden, those gray clouds get a little more gray. And here comes the rain. And not just here comes the rain, here comes the storm. And we're not very schooled in this, so I guess we just thought we were going to, I don't know, last, like, wait through it. And by the time we untie the boat and begin to head back, like, we're in a significant storm, all right? So, I, like, I don't even know what to compare it to, but we are, like, the kids and, and Caitlin and Sherry and the girls, like, they're huddled in the back, like, and I just hear my kids screaming bloody, ah! 
we're going to be okay. We're going to, oh, you know, and they're just crying, like sobbing, crying. Eric is this valiant captain of the boat, and he's got his glasses on, and it feels like hail, like the, like the water is coming in on it, like the rain, and he's like, like he's just standing at the boat like this, you know, and um, I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. So the first thing that I do is I think I'll stand up here with him and help be his eyes. So I stand up and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to do that. That hurt. So I'm like holding up a towel, like peeking around the towel as I can, trying to make our way back. And um, I love Eric. I'm not sure how this happened, but he's like, we're going we're gonna to make it. We're going to be okay. Am I going the right direction? I'm like, Eric, you're about to like hit the land right over here on the right. I'm like, turn left, turn left. And so like we're trying to do this and, and things are clearly out of control. I mean, clearly out of control. Uh, he's like, do you think it's going to pass? Do you think we can come back out after the storm? I'm like, do you hear my kids? They might not ever get on the boat with you ever again. Things are completely out of control. And then as we're doing, like as we're, we're trying to make our way back, like it's crazy, a speedboat like zooms by us, all kinds of madness. And all of a sudden, it's been lightning around and close. And this one time I like peek around the towel. I'm 6'4". And I see lightning strike like there. Like I, I see it hit, right? Like I, I know that I see it hit. And there's this moment in my brain, right? This moment where I went from thinking, wow, things are really out of control, to wondering if I would ever be in control again. Like, am I ever going to get off this boat? Like, am I going to be alive when we, and, and I, like, I can't emphasize enough to you that, that I haven't felt that way in a really long time, but I genuinely was worried for our lives, okay? Like, like it, is, it was very, very scary. And, and when that lightning struck, that was when things changed, right? Like, it's one thing, it's one thing to be out of control, but it is an entirely different thing to wonder if you'll ever be in control again. Do you sense the difference? It's one thing to have a bad day. It's one thing for things to seem like they're out of control for a moment, but it's an entirely different thing to wonder if they'll ever be in control again. The pandemic has certainly brought this out, right? It was one thing to be quarantined and to not know and to not be in control of what happened next. Like that was one thing. We're all in this together, right? You got all the songs and the, it was great. We're all in this together. But now, as we try to re-engage, there are so many other elements at play. And that sense of feeling out of control in some ways has, has shifted to a new question that is, will I ever be in control of my life again? Was I ever really in control of my life? Some people will say and try to shrug it off. But, but there is a very real and, and different kind of fear that comes from, well, okay, we're all out of control right now, to will I ever be in control again? In Exodus chapter 2, uh, there's a story that I think helps illustrate how this, this plays out. And, and I just need you to trust me for a minute. We're talking about control and fear so that our passage for today is like it shows us the good news and hope that we have in Jesus, the better hope that we have in Jesus, all right? So in Exodus chapter 2, we read, like, it's, it's, a, it's a really impactful story that happens in, like, four verses. Moses 
has, you know, he, he was an Israelite, but he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, right? He's raised in the palace, and he's now, like, in a position of power, in a position of control, and um, the Israelites are now under slavery, and so uh, he sees one day an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, and it makes him angry, and his response to that, how many of you know what he does? What's he do? He kills him. He kills this Egyptian, he was out of control in that moment, right? No question. Anybody who kills somebody is, is, is out of control there for a moment. He's out of control. But, but then he kind of, like, when you read the text, like, he just kind of goes back to normal. Like, I, I did this. I, I, in his mind, he brought justice, and, and, and everything's okay. But then in verse 14, something happens. A man approaches him, and he says, Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And it says, then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. That moment in Moses' brain, where it was one thing to be out of control, it was one thing to do the wrong thing, but, but it's an entirely different thing to wonder if I'll ever be in control again. And Moses realized, I may never be in control of how this story is told ever again. And so what's he do? He runs. He runs. He flees. In your life, it's one thing to not be in control. It's one thing to have a bad day. It's one thing to not know. It's an entirely different thing right now to wonder and wrestle with whether you'll ever be in control again. We see this fleshed out in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's fleshed out in your marriage. You have a fight with your spouse. You have a bad day and you, you both lose control, but then, oh, you kiss and make up. But over time, you realize that those little fights are about a much deeper sin underneath it all. You wonder if your marriage will ever be healthy again. You realize that you can't manage one another's sin, right? You have no control over that, and you wonder if your, your marriage will ever feel like it's stable or firm or secure ever again. Your relationship to the church. It was one thing to recognize that that when you attend a church gathering, you can't control what others do, right? Like, like there's a, just a, an innate level of faith. You think, well, you know what? I'll just, I'll stay away from the gathering until, and then you fill in the blank with whatever you want because I've heard the blank filled in with whatever you want. I'll stay away until then. I'll go back when things get back to normal, right? I've heard that. But what if we never have normal again? What if there's that moment, right, where we realize that it's one thing to be out of control, but it's entirely another to wonder if you'll ever be in control again? What if we never get to a point where people feel good about shaking hands and giving hugs and going back to normal? We're experiencing this and we're wrestling with this as it relates to school. Parents, we all realize, whether we have come to grips with it or not, we all realize that sending your kids to school releases a level of control that you would otherwise have in your kid's life. Guess what? That was true even before this. But, but the reality is, right, we're having to wrestle with this because all of a sudden it, it was one thing to be out of control from it, but to wonder if you'll ever be in control again. The temptation, right, the temptation as we face all of these things where we seem to be losing control is to believe that only we can steady ourselves in the storm. There was a temptation even that day on Taylorsville Lake in the boat to believe there was something that I could do that was going to, to steady the boat or to make the storm stop. 
you do everything you can, right? Like you stay away from certain waves and you, I, I don't know what else you do in the boat, like, but you try, to, you try everything in your own power, right? We, we know what this is called. Fight or flight kicks in, right? When storms come. And we begin to tell ourselves whatever we need to hear to get through it. We begin to write the narrative in our mind. Fear often manifests itself in one of these two extremes. And so as we begin today into this passage, as we jump into this passage, I need us, whether you're online with us or you're here with us, I need us to wrestle with these two questions, to let the Spirit help us become aware of what it is this better hope is going to speak to. Because fear manifests itself in one of two extremes, either overwork or withdrawal, right? When it manifests itself in overwork, it, it, it says, okay, I'm afraid, I want to run, and I'm going to do everything in my power to stay in control. And, and we know that this overwork leads to exhaustion and, and to burnout and ultimately defeat because many times as we try to overwork, we're trying to run ahead of God. And so the question that you need to wrestle with, right, is are there areas in your life right now where you compensate for the fear you're facing by overworking? Are there areas in your life where you compensate for fear by overworking? You're worried how you're going to make ends meet. You're worried if your marriage is going to make it. You're worried about how your kids are going to operate in this new reality. Are there areas in your life where you compensate for fear by overworking? But there's another extreme that fear manifests itself in, and that's withdrawal. If I can't be in control, I'll withdraw and be in a place where only I can be in control. It leads to isolation and depression and, uh, uh, guess what, again, defeat. You see, running to either one of these extremes leads us to, to feeling defeated. And, and here's the tricky part. There may be some areas of your life where you're overworking, and there may be some areas of your life where you're withdrawing. Are there areas in your life where you compensate for fear by withdrawing? So I slow down and I pause because I want us to genuinely ask the Spirit, wherever we are, to help us to see these things right now, to know those things, so that as we jump into this text, we can really be aware of what it is the Lord wants to be working on and working out in our lives. Are there areas in your life where you compensate for fear by overworking, and conversely, by withdrawal? Because the reality is, right, like we tell ourselves, there's got to be another way. There has to be something besides these two extremes, and in fact, there is. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to be stuck in this pattern of fear and response, fear and response, fear and response, and yet that's the way that many of us are leading our lives. He doesn't want you to live and respond out of fear, but, but how does Jesus Christ change things so that that doesn't have to be true? Hope. Hope anchors our soul when we feel out of control. I want you to read with me verse 19 in the middle of this passage. It's such, uh, such a good one to memorize and to, to make a part of who we are. Uh, read it with me if you would. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. <laughs> this hope, this hope, we need to ask some questions about this hope if we're going to understand how hope anchors our soul when we feel out of control. 
All right, so, so we're going to ask, what is this hope in? Hope in what? And we're going to ask, how does this hope anchor my soul? And, and then thirdly, how do we hold on to it so that we can be firm and secure in the midst of the storm? First, what hope? Hope in a God who never lies. Look back at verses 13 through 15 with me. It jumps back into the Old Testament and tells the story of Abraham. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. God never lies. He, his promises are always true. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was kept. God made this promise moments after Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. Genesis 22, if you want to go and read that this week. But instead of having to follow through with the sacrifice of his son, God provided a ram for the sacrifice, and he, he promised Abraham in that moment that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And it's like, a, like we say that, but that's a woe moment. Abraham's well advanced in years. He's got this one son who's still with him. And he says, your offspring are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Like that's mind blowing. That's his promise. I promise to give you more offspring than the stars in the sky. Well, how did God keep that promise? Galatians 3.29 tells us. It says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Double woe. You, if you are in Christ today, you are part of God keeping his promise to Abraham made so long ago. God made a promise that he kept in an incredible way, but not only does God keep his promises, he guarantees them with an oath. The image that comes to mind when you say oath is, is someone laying their hand on a Bible as, as they're sworn in for testimony, right? Like, I do solemnly swear. And their words uh, in that moment are guaranteed by, by swearing to something or someone greater than themselves. It's, it's one of the few ways that people have to, to press harder and deeper into trust. Listen into the argument that's made in verses 16 and 17. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. That's us. He guaranteed it with an oath. It brings about this realization, right, that, that humans have always looked to God as a guarantee on their promises. That's an oath. But God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 was guaranteed by his own character. It was promised that, that no human it was a promise that no human could make good on, but God did. Hope anchors our soul when we feel out of control. And that hope is in a God who, who never lies. It's in a God that never gives us fake news or false hope or, or makes promises that won't be kept. But how does that hope anchor my soul? Like, I hear you, Blake. Like, that's something to really be hopeful in, but how does that anchor my soul? Verse 18 so that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. You're like, hold on, Blake. I'm, I'm calling a bluff. I thought we were trying to stop all this running in fear. Why are we talking, why are we talking about running for refuge now? 
And I want to I invite you to, to go on another quick trip back to the Old Testament. Right? The Israelites, we, we talked, they're slaves in Egypt. And God miraculously led them out. And, and as he led them out, the plan was for them to pursue the promised land of Canaan, a land that he said was flowing with milk and honey. But when they got close to that promised land, they got scared. They got scared. To take the land required them to believe that God would fight for them. They didn't, and the people wandered in the desert for 40 years. But even as they wandered, the Lord was working to prepare them for the promised land. In Numbers 35, the Lord speaks to Moses about these things called cities of refuge. I mean, God thought about everything in advance. And he tells Moses in Numbers 35 to tell the people that when they take this promised land, they're to establish these things called cities of refuge, six of them. And these cities are to be a safe place for anyone who has killed someone unintentionally. It's a modern-day manslaughter charge. He says, look, if somebody kills somebody intentionally, if they murder them, then the law says they're to, they're to be stoned. But, but if it's an accident, if it's an accident, send them to a city of refuge. And in these cities, they're not to be harmed, right? No one can harm them. They're to be protected from anyone who would want revenge for this incidental death. And if the person leaves the city, here's a catch, right? If I accidentally kill somebody, I go to the city of refuge, and if I leave that city, I'm fair game. I mean, this is like a grown-up version of tag, and the city of refuge is base, okay? But if I stay in that city, if I stay in that city, I'm protected. It's a refuge. Isn't that like an amazing detail? But there's one other thing, an interesting piece about this. When a new high priest was anointed in, in the nation of Israel, there was a reset on all that. Those taking refuge were to return to their original homes, and the protection stopped. Like, Blake, what kind of hope is that? Refuge doesn't seem like refuge if it just runs out at some point. Like, what, what, like are we just supposed to hope that nobody knows about what I did a long time ago or that the other people have already passed? And this is where we see the, the value of Jesus as our high priest. You see, Jesus protects us eternally as a high priest. Verse 19 and 20 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus is entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you catch it? Jesus has gone into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. He isn't a high priest. He is the high priest, and he will be forever. And since Jesus will always be the high priest, we will always be able to live in safety just as those who are sent to the cities of refuge. There is never a moment in our lives where we have to leave the refuge of Jesus Christ. We have fled for refuge in him so that we might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. That means that your hope in Christ is better. Never will you lose the protection of your high priest. There's always a place of refuge in the Lord. And because you will always be safe in him, you can seize the better hope set before you. How? How do we do that? Verse 20 calls Jesus the forerunner on our behalf. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
You mean to tell me that Jesus didn't go into the Holy of Holies so that he could obtain all the power of being a high priest? Nope. He already had the power. You mean Jesus didn't go into the, the Holy of Holies so that he could take back what was rightfully his and get revenge on Satan? Nope. He keeps no record of his wrongs. This wasn't about revenge. Jesus went in as a forerunner on our behalf. He went in as a sacrifice for us so that we could join him there. And this means something crazy. That since Jesus is the high priest, our forerunner, we can follow him into the Holy of Holies. We can follow Jesus into the presence of God. The Holy of Holies is where the high priest met God. It's where God revealed himself to the high priest. And you can now go there, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done as a forerunner in your place, on your behalf. You can be in the presence of God, and he speaks to you, even in your moments of greatest fear. Hope anchors our soul when we feel out of control. But how do we hold on to that hope? By staying close to our forerunner. There's a lot of ways to illustrate this, but I thought of none better than a writing, a prayer, that Caitlin's grandma, Barbara Slavin, wrote. She had been watching Magnolia when she was first born, and she wrote this prayer and put it on our fridge. It's stayed there ever since. It's just, it's one of those that will stick with me forever. She writes, May I press my face into the shoulder blades of Jesus and follow him with every step he takes. May I be so intoxicated by him that I don't lose a single precious moment basking in the scent of his nearness. May I press so close to him that my own steps don't even matter. May I press into him ever so close, breathe in deeply the scent of him, and not lag behind. That's it. To follow Jesus into the Holy of Holies, to to be in the presence of God by staying so close to Jesus that, that I can smell the scent of him. You're like, still, how do I practically do this, Blake? Like, I get the visual, that sounds great. He's our forerunner, I'm following him. How do I actually do this? And I believe the key is in Abraham's story at the beginning of the passage. Look back at verse 15 with me when it says, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. You see, of all the things you can't control, You can control how you respond to fear. You can control how close you stay to Jesus because you know he will always draw near to you when you draw near to him. And so that's painted in the story of Abraham who waited patiently for years and years and years and years and years and yet obtained, was ready for action to take hold of the promise that God had given to him. And so as we finish up our time in this passage and as we get ready for a month of thinking about a better hope and a better priest with a better covenant, I want us to ask two questions. I want us to think about being content and waiting patiently and being ready for whenever Jesus moves us closer to the presence of God. So here's the questions, and then we'll flesh those out. To be content... What is it that you need me to be content about, Lord? What is it that you need me to be content about, Lord? But then also to obtain, to be ready. 
And the question is, what is it that we need to be ready to do, Lord? What is it that you need me to be ready to do, Lord? As we think about being content, this might be just being willing to engage your Bible daily and instead of expecting God to, to flash some huge neon sign that says, here's what you do. Like, it's, I'm just going to be faithful. I'm just going to be patiently waiting in God's word for him to speak to me. To be content for you in this season might be to recognize that there's a new budget. There's a new budget in your house. And I'm going to be content with that budget instead of feeling angst or anxiety about it. To be content might be to, to be content with progress in your marriage instead of perfection in your marriage. To be content might be to, to wait and see as you begin to make plans for this fall and the year after and the year after. To be content might be to let the dishes wait while you spend time with your, your kids. You know, a sign of being content is not being divided in the moment. It's being able to be present. And when we're able to be present, it's a good sign that we're content in what the Lord is doing in our midst. So I ask you, are you present? And what needs to change for you to be present? What is it that you need me to be content about, Lord? After waiting, Abraham obtained. We also have to be ready. What is it that you need to be ready to do? Maybe you need to be ready to share Jesus with your neighbor. The stories are beginning to multiply of those who are sharing Jesus with those who live, physically live near to them. Keep that going, church. You need to be ready if you're online as you think about when you're going to come back to church. You need to be ready to face an uphill battle when it comes to reengaging the church. Once you say, I'm, I'm doing this, Satan surely wants to get in the way of that. He wants to, to make it difficult. He, he wants to, to cause you to doubt and wonder. To be ready might be to, to grab hold of a truth from Scripture and not let go of it. I know that the Lord has brought this verse into my life for some specific reason, and so I'm not going to let go of it until he shows me what to do with it. To be ready means to, to get your financial house in order so that you can say yes to an opportunity to give. Uh, to, to be ready might mean to, to think about how you spend your time and to be ready to give your time to serving in our community. To be ready means I'm going to do whatever it takes to be able to take my next step on the discipleship pathway. I want to close by fleshing out this tension by giving one more example of what it means to wait patiently but to be ready to obtain. I can remember growing up uh, on the farm, we mixed our own feed for the sheep. Uh, my dad is a very detail-oriented guy. He likes things to be done his way, which is the right way. And he would tell you that very proudly as he stood here beside me. And so to get just the right mixture of feed for the sheep that we were feeding, I mean, we would have the percentage of protein mathematically calculated, and we would know how, how much of this mineral and how much, of, like, it was all, like, science. And so we would go out every day, and we had this big wooden box, and we had this mixing drum, and we would put all the, the you know, you had a scale that hung there, and, like, you'd put a bucket up there, and you'd zero it out, and you'd put just the right amount, and you'd pour it in, and then you'd, sometimes you'd scoop it with a shovel, sometimes you, I mean, it was just, it was a process, right? But you didn't mess with Dad's process. So as he began to teach us as boys how to do this, you know, we would, we would help with certain things, and 
I can remember a time when we were going to add some, some of this specific mineral to the feed, and we took the bucket, and we put it on the scale, and we zeroed it out, and, and he said, we, well, listen, we can't mess this with that. This is a high-powered mineral. Like, we've got to get just the right amount. And so you begin to, to pour a little bit of the feed in, and you're watching the scale as the little thing moves. And I really don't know what I'm looking for. And so I ask what any kid would ask. Now, Dad? Now? Shh! I'll tell you when! Right? Now, Dad? Is that enough? Shh! I'll let you know. Just be ready. And so it is with the Lord. And the Lord knows exactly what we need. He knows the right amount of everything that we need. He knows exactly how to mix it all together and lead you to the life that he has promised to give you. So instead of trying to to make our own life, instead of trying to figure out everything in advance, and we just simply follow the Lord's instruction, we get as close to him as we can as he's mixing all these things together for his good and his glory, listening intently to him, as he tells us when to wait and when to move. Because life will turn out just the way he planned it when we do that. And he's got the best recipes. So as we get ready to start this journey as a church in the month of August of exploring why Jesus is still the answer, the better answer with a better hope, I want to close today by just asking a simple question. In your life, Is he saying now? Is there something that he's asking you to lay down? Is he asking you to give your entire life to him and accept him for the first time? Is he saying now? For for some of you, he may be saying, shh, just be quiet and wait. Please, don't you know me? Like, please, just wait. I'll tell you when. But I believe that maybe you're listening online, maybe you're here, and he's saying now. Now. Take action. Make disciples. Give your life to me and to my mission. If that's you this morning and, and you know that you need to take action, you need to, you need to move because the Lord is moving you, and you're here, I'm going to be in the back as the band comes back and sings a song about running to our Father. If you're online, I want to encourage you to text at New Life CCC to 81010, and we'll start a conversation about how you can take that next step with Christ. But wherever you are, whether it's waiting for the Lord or he's saying now, be obedient. Be obedient to what he's saying to you today. Because as we're obedient, we seize hope, hope in him. And that hope anchors our soul when we feel out of control. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for being a high priest forever. We have refuge forever in you. Help us to to reach out and to seize that hope today by being obedient to whatever it is you're calling us to. Whether that's waiting patiently or or seizing and and grabbing and being ready to, to move as you say now. Thank you, Jesus, for being our forerunner. Help us to follow you ever so close. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.